So today we are continuing a series called With, and we've been talking about how we view our relationship with God, and we've been talking about these default postures uh, for the last couple weeks, and today we're looking at another one of these default postures that we often find ourselves in in our relationship with God. And the reason we're doing this series is the way that we view God has a profound impact on how we live out our faith and how we interact with one another. Our perspective of who God is and how we view ourselves in relationship with him has a lot of impact on how we, the decisions we make, how we carry out our lives, um, how we interact with one another. And so these four postures that we've been talking about help us understand that and help us understand how we want to move into a relationship with God. And this message series is based on a book that was written uh, by an Alliance pastor and author named Sky Jatani. And he wrote this book uh, quite a few years ago called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. And so we just decided for this time um, in, in our church and in our relationship with God, this was a good time to come back to this book and back to this series and help us get a perspective on how we view God. And so just to recap, um, the four default postures uh, of how we relate to God are referenced this way, of there's life over God and under God. Those are the two we've explored already. And today we're going to look at life from God, and next week we'll be looking at life for God. Now, out of these four postures, life under God and life from God uh, are somewhat similar to another, where sometimes they're, uh, they're very common in our society and in our world. And when I've encountered and when I've talked with people about their relationship with God, sometimes it's easy to see these two postures as being probably the most common of the four postures. And so this life from God posture is a posture that starts uh, kind of internal in us. Now, one of the things that's just a simple truth about how we view the world is we can only view the world from our own perspective. Every experience, every encounter, every relationship, every friendship we have, we see it through our own eyes. Um, Every world event, every topic, every news article, we read through our own eyes, through our own biases. And because we see the world through our own eyes and our own perspective, it's natural for us to sometimes assume that everyone else must see things the same way that we do, maybe, or to see things in similar ways that we do. That if there's, you know, something that you have to make a decision on, and you wonder why, you know, why, didn't, why did that person make the decision they did? Don't they, why aren't they making the decision the way that I make it? Because we see things from our own perspective. And the life from God posture has some similarities to that. In fact, the life from God posture starts by assuming that the way that we see the world is the same way that God sees the world. And therefore, what we desire, God must also desire. And so the life from God posture can be characterized by this kind of viewpoint, that if this is how we see the world, we start to think, well, God should see the world the way that I see the world. And the things that I desire are the things that God must also desire, both for me and for the world. Now, that might seem a little strange to say, but oftentimes this is a posture that we are not consciously aware that we are holding to, even as we live it out. And so Skye, in the book, he describes it this way. He says, this is the essence of life from God. God exists to supply what we need or desire. And so we've been talking in this series about how each of these postures seeks to address our human need um, for control when something scares us, when there's fear, when we face uncertainties in life. 
we all often look for control in some way, and the life from God posture tries to do that. And it tries to do that in this way of saying, well, God must exist to supply me with what I need or desire in this moment to overcome what's making me feel uncomfortable or uncertain or afraid. And so this posture um, is this God should supply to us, and we call it from God because it's we should be getting things from God to us so that we can live our lives the way we want to. And Sky goes on and he describes it this way. He says, and although my tone may already be dismissive, there is some merit to this view of God. Scripture reminds us repeatedly that all we have comes from God. And this is where this posture can have some blurry lines to it because we recognize that God does own everything, that God does provide for us, that God does desire to give us things, that God desires to protect and care for us. And there's many scriptures we could go to that talk about that. But the difference here is that the life from God posture does something to that, and it overemphasizes it. And so again, I'm going to use Sky's words to describe this. He says, but the life from God posture has a tendency to overemphasize this single aspect of the divine human relationship. It makes receiving God's gifts the entirety of our religious lives. And so what he's saying there is that when we're in this posture, we think that our relationship with God exists to give us what we need, to give us the possessions, the prosperity, um, the supplies, the resources, the strength. God exists to give us what we need for our moment as defined by us. And in fact, to, to summarize this, we could say that if we value God's provision over a relationship with God, we have stepped into the life from God posture. If the gift is more important than the giver. Now, just as Sky says, there is some merit to this view. Gifts are a way that we show one another that we love and that we care for one another. And in the same way, God has passages of scripture where he talks about where God gives gifts of his provision and his care to those that he loves, which is everyone, so that we can do what God has called us to do. But when we take that and we flip it over, when we put the gift as more important than the giver, we have stepped into this life from God posture. And while this is a very common posture in our world today, this is a posture that still existed and was prevalent all through history. In fact, I want to take us to a time when Jesus was talking with a group of Pharisees as an example of this life from God posture being seen. Now, last week we talked about how the Pharisees had this strict devotion to the law approach to life. In fact, they exemplified life over God in many ways. But one of the things the Pharisees got upset with Jesus about was who he spent time with. Jesus often spent time with people that the Pharisees considered repulsive. He spent time with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes. He spent time with the people who actually were open and needed a relationship with God. And so at one point, these Pharisees come and they ask Jesus, why do you hang out with these people? And Jesus responds by telling three parables. He tells a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then he tells the longest of the three stories. And it begins um, this way. And so they came, they asked him this question, why are you spending time with sinful people and even eating with them? And so we skip ahead in the passage of Luke 15, and Jesus says this, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, 
when the son goes to his father and says, I want my share of your estate now, he's saying, I want my inheritance now. And by going to his father and saying that, what he is basically saying to his dad is, I wish you were dead because when you die, I'll get my inheritance and then I can do something with that. And so when Jesus tells this parable, everyone in the room is like, oh no, that kid didn't. What a jerk. Probably used some stronger words than that to describe the younger son in the moment. And then the radical part is the father agrees to divide his wealth between his sons, between the older son and the younger son. Now, there is no reason for the father to do this, to split up and divide his estate to give the money to his younger son at this point in time. And we're going to pause the parable here and come back and finish it out later. But what this happens in this moment is Jesus is describing a life from God posture in how the son, the younger son in the parable relates to his father, because the younger son's request showed that his relationship with the father was only as valuable as how much he could get from his father. His relationship with his father had a dollar sign on it, and it was equivalent to the value of his estate and the portion that the younger son would get when his father dies. Now, this was not a problem just in the first century. In fact, if we go all the way back into deep into the Old Testament, deep into the Hebrew Scriptures, there is a time period where the ancient Israelites are warned about the danger of valuing what comes from God higher than a relationship with God. And so in the series, we've often gone to Moses, and we've gone to this time period when Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they've been wandering through the wilderness, and all these ways that God provided for them happened. You know, they came out of Egypt, and suddenly they're like, well, we have no food. And so God starts providing manna and quail each day, um, every day except the Sabbath, for them to have food to eat every day. And then last week, we talked about how twice there were occasions where God provided water out of a rock for them to drink so that they wouldn't be thirsty and parched. But there's more than that that God did in this provision, because as God is leading them to this land that he has designated for the Israelites to take, he tells them that this land is going to be plentiful for them. In fact, earlier on, they sent spies into the land, and their report that they came back was, this land is fertile, it's wonderful, when we settle there, we will be able to be prosperous. Now, at the end of their time period in the wilderness, Moses has led the people to the edge of the promised land, and Moses gives the people this big farewell address because Moses knows he is not going to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua is the one who leads the people into the land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is this kind of great final speech, this grand final message that Moses is giving to the people. And in that, Moses gives a warning to the people about what happens when they take this land that will be plentiful and fertile and be a wonderful place for them to live. Moses tells them this from Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commandments, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. Notice that first part. He says, this is the time to be careful. When you are prosperous, be careful, because in your plenty, do not forget the Lord. When you have all that you need, will you forget to rely on the Lord the way that you have for the past 40 years of wandering in the wilderness? 
But what happened was exactly what Moses predicted. When the ancient Israelites settled in the land and became prosperous, they put their trust in their wealth and they ignored God. In fact, Sky describes it this way. It says, God's prediction proved to be accurate. Again and again, Israel turned away from God in times of prosperity and peace. They became enamored with his good gifts, and these comforts distracted the people from seeking God himself. And so the entire book of Judges is the story of what happened when the Israelites settled in the land how they they failed to take control of the land the way that they were supposed to, and then how as they intermingled with the people in the land, how every time they were prosperous, every time they did well, they forgot about God, and they turned away from God, they started worshiping idols, and then calamity came upon them, and God sent judges time and time again to rescue them. And in fact, that sets up a narrative and a pattern that continues through the entire Hebrew scriptures that the people would forget God, fall away, and God would rescue them in some way. And at times that rescue took many years, even centuries. At times that rescue was quick. And every time God called the people back to a relationship with him, he didn't call them back into the wealth and prosperity they had that caused them to forget. Every time God calls the people back into a relationship with him. And so you might be wondering already, How do you move out of a life from God posture? If we have become enamored with the gifts of God more than God himself, how do we move out of that posture and into a relationship with God? And for that, I want to take us to one of Paul's letters. And this is a letter that's found in the New Testament. It's a letter that Paul, um, Paul was an apostle who likely was a child when Jesus walked the earth. And then a few years after um, the resurrection, Paul is active as a Pharisee and his job was to persecute Christians and get them to give up their faith and renounce following Jesus as Messiah. But Jesus meets with Paul and has this, Paul has this radical transformation in his life and he turns his entire life around. He spends the rest of his life teaching about Jesus. But Paul angered a lot of people by doing this. And in fact, Paul ends up getting arrested and pleads his case to Caesar so that he has to go to Rome. And so Paul is in prison and he's on this long, slow journey towards Rome. And he writes a letter to a church that has been supporting him and helping him out. Now, something you have to know about Roman prisoners is if you were a Roman prisoner and you were in jail, you were not provided with food to eat. In fact, you had to have people, friends or family outside of the Roman prison who would bring you food to eat. And in some ways, this is Rome's way of dealing with their prisoner problem. Um, If you don't feed them, suddenly you don't have a prisoner problem. It is not an ethical or moral way of treating people who are imprisoned, but that's what Rome did. And so Paul, normally through his ministry, he worked to support himself. He was bivocational. He, made, he was a tent maker. He worked with cloth and canvas to fund his ministry. But now he can't do that. And so the church of Philippi had sent money and gifts to Paul to support him while he was in prison. And so Paul writes this letter back to the Philippian church, and near the end of it, he thanks them for their generosity. He says, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. 
but he starts with, I'm praising the Lord that you are able to help me. And he adds this thing, he's saying, I'm not saying you didn't want to help me before, you just didn't have the chance before, and now that you did, you took, you know, you took that chance and you seized that opportunity. But then Paul takes his gratitude and he turns it into a moment to teach the Philippian church something. He says to them, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And now Paul isn't discrediting their generosity, but he's telling them, I have learned how to be content in whatever situation I am in. And he says, I have learned this secret. And then he says this next part, and this is a verse that may be familiar to you. He says, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Now that verse, the part that's yellow in the screen, highlighted verse 13, may be one of the most um, commonly quoted passages of scripture that is ripped out of context. Um, There's even a a famous basketball player has this verse written on their shoes as a demonstration, you know, Christ gives me the strength for everything I endure. And when asked in an interview, this basketball player talked about how his strength to play basketball comes from God. And there is a beauty in that of attributing that everything we have comes from God. But oftentimes this verse gets taken too far and gets put in this context of, well, whatever I set my mind to, God will give me the strength to do, whether that's part of God's plan or not, whether that's a wise choice or not, whether that is something good to do or not, God will give me the strength to do it if I want it enough. And that is taking this passage out of context, because in passage, what Paul is saying is Christ is giving him the strength to be content in any situation Whether he has a full stomach or an empty stomach, whether he has plenty or a little, he is content with whatever he has. Now, what that contentment means is that he has learned how to put the relationship with God above what he needs in the moment. And so when Paul thanks the Philippian church for their generosity, he uses it as an opportunity to teach how contentment is found in a relationship with God. Because when we are content and when we learn contentment in our lives, we start to do away with that need for more and better and bigger. We start to do away with our need for our possessions and our desires to grow because we can learn to be content with where we are. And so Paul gives this lesson to the Philippian church. But I want to take us back to that parable. Remember, Jesus was asked, why do you hang out with sinners? Why do you hang out with people that are evil, that are people that are mean, that people are far from God in the eyes of the Pharisees. And so remember, the younger son asks for his inheritance early, tells his dad he wishes his dad was dead. He takes the money that his father gives him and he goes off to a distant land and he blows every dollar. He goes to Vegas, loses it all, and then is stuck in this foreign land wondering what to do. Now that wouldn't be so bad, you know, he could figure out what to do next, but then a famine hits the land. And people are out of work, crops aren't growing, and so finally this young son gets a job feeding pigs. Now, pigs are not a kosher animal under the Jewish dietary law. And so it is despicable that he takes a job working with pigs to faithful Jews. And so he is there, and so you can almost imagine these Pharisees listening to this story saying, yeah, yeah, that younger son, he got what he deserved. 
He got what he deserved for saying he wished his father was dead and wasting all that money. He's working with the pigs. But then Jesus keeps going with the parable. And he says this, when, when he, the younger son, finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He takes a posture of repentance. He wants to go to his father and beg for forgiveness. And so he chooses to do that, and he begins his journey home. And Jesus goes on, he says this next. So the younger son returned home to his father, and while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now the Pharisees standing around, they would be taking a step back. No, 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 this isn't how the father responds. This is not how you respond to someone who says, I wish you were dead. This is not how you respond to your son who wasted uh, half your estate's value. Jesus goes on, he says, and so the, the son begins to apologize. The son begins to say to his father, I am sorry. And the father cuts him off, doesn't even hear out his apology. And the father says to the servants, bring a ring, bring a sandals, bring a robe, kill the fattened calf. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Now Jesus was asked, why do you hang out with people that are far from God? And his response is to tell a story of a son who did everything possible to anger his father, took his money, wished he was dead, ran off, wasted it all, takes a despicable job, finally comes back, and the father doesn't even hear out his apology. He welcomes him back. He gives him a robe, a ring, sandals, calls for a feast. These are all statements of restoration, of saying, no, no, you're not going to be a hired, you're not going to be a hired servant. You are still my son. And so he has this party. And so what we need to recognize in this, that when Jesus calls for this celebration, when he tells this parable, he's saying to them that the son, the relationship with the son between father and son in this story matters way more than any offense that could have driven a wedge between them. Jesus is telling them that the relationship matters more. And so if we want to move away from a life from God posture, our faith has to become more than a method to gain and receive gifts from God. The younger son came to this realization that the relationship with his father was more important. And he felt like he had burned every bridge, that he could only come back as a servant. But the father surprised him with a relationship. And so gratitude, contentment, and seeing God as the loving father in this parable, waiting to welcome us back into a relationship with him, is what will move us from a life from God into a life with God. Paul used the opportunity of the Philippians caring for him to talk about gratitude and contentment, to talk about how these attitudes immediately shift us back into the relational perspective of our relationship with God and not being focused on just the gifts that God gives us. And then Jesus' parable says that God is waiting with open arms to welcome you back. No matter how long you may have been in a life from God posture, 
Even if that's been your focus for a long time, God is still desiring to welcome you back and to call you his child. That is the promise of life with God, is this relationship with God that we are all called into, that God desires to have with us. And so we're going to continue exploring the posture. We have one posture left of the four defaults that we're going to talk about, and then we're going to spend time together as a church talking more about how do we live in that relationship with God. So thank you for joining us for our online service today. I hope you have a great week. I hope that you find ways to enjoy God's presence with you over the span of this week. So thanks for being here, and see you online next Sunday.